0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of Screen Bites, our thought leader series where we learn from industry experts about the latest trends and challenges from across the conversion TV space. I'm your host, Michael Beach. This week, I'm joined by Andrew Rosen. Andrew is the founder of Parkour and a former executive at Viacom. If you read State of the Screens, then you are no doubt familiar with Andrew since we quote him often. Please enjoy my conversation with Andrew Rosen. All right. Well, Andrew, thanks for joining us today.
1: No, Thank you for having me, Michael. Real pleasure to be here.
0: Excellent. Uh, we'll start off with an icebreaker. Uh, we ask all of our guests, uh, you know, what was your first job, and and what lessons did you take away from it that you applied to your career?
1: Uh, my first job, well, I'll say so. I've had an unconventional career path. Um, like, it, you know, I went to law school. I worked in foreign policy, and then uh, after law school, a bunch of friends of mine tried to start a media venture, and that kind of took me to MTV Networks. And we can come back to that but the but the you know when this the, the fun story on this one is and it's a great lesson uh was a uh, I was working at a in high school I worked for a construction company for a summer um and I knew the boss and but I you know sort of sat down and, and I wanted to like just kind of make a little bit of money and kind of get the experience of something that was a um I don't know, just kind of like a a real job, right? Like just kind of understand that not in an office job, just kind of be out there and and do something like that. Um, and there was a moment on the workshop on the, on the work site where we were sort of in between doing something, right? Like whether it was cleaning up or or putting together something. And so there was a New York times or a New York post and I started reading it and the, the boss came by, uh, and he saw me reading. (laughs) <laughs> and he saw me and he goes, where do you think you are? School. <laughs> and then he goes, welcome to the school of hard knocks. <laughs> and so I always think of, as the quote was in my yearbook page, like I, I think about that quote a lot because it's it, of, of things that, I don't know, it, it, when you go into any work situation, when you go into entrepreneurship and this is sort of a, a larger philosophy I have about, um, kind of having a discipline and, and being prepared for the worst. Um, but, you know, or at the very least just being in a place of mental preparation. Um, I always take that with me because it's, there's a real, you, you have to understand that what you're doing, no matter where it is, that there's, you're working for somebody else and uh, you're in circumstances that are beyond your control. Um, and it's not, there's no reason to get down about things when they don't go your way it's much more about having the, the discipline to understand that the highs are going to be high, the lows are going to be low. And, and it's, uh, you have to do the best that you, you can both when you're somebody's paying you money and, and, uh, when you're paying people money.
0: Yeah. I love that. And I'm sure that, uh, kind of applied later in your career. Um, you know, it's a lesson I think everybody can, uh, can take to heart. Um, how did you go from that? You know, obviously taking a, a, a little bit of left turn away from foreign policy and end up in the media space.
1: I was in law school and I, I, I worked for American lawyer media for a summer, uh, working with the general counsel there. Um, and I just, I don't know, there was something about, there's a creative side of me and there's a part of me that really likes entrepreneurship. And I, I got a legal education largely, not because I wanted to be a lawyer necessarily, but because a lot of the entrepreneurs who I really sort of saw succeed wildly all had, um, legal backgrounds. Um, And, and so for me, I wanted that training, Uh, I thought it would be a better training than an MBA, Um, that there's a real debate to be had about whether that was a good decision. (laughs) Uh, But, uh, but the point was, I like the the key thing that I wanted out of it, though, was critical analytical thinking, right? Like that it was, I like the way that lawyers thought, I like the dispassionate element of it, I like the fact that you could sort of, you know, that you're not as much as you're trying to to win people over with emotion and sentiment, you're also thinking about the moving pay- pieces in a way that is selfless. Um, and there's and, you're, and, and the best thing about it is you're trained to be skeptical. You're trained to ask, "Well, why is that true?" Uh, and and so that was I, I like that training. Um, and then I, I sort of tried to do a couple of entrepreneurial ventures that failed horribly, um, but were interesting in that like. Know, with a college classmate we tried to do something in theater that around uh sort of around the same time that Lynn manuel miranda was kind of starting to get uh, uh uh prominence in the theater scene this is like early like early aughts and so we, we knew the producer actually we ended up producing one of the producers of hamilton um but you know she was going down a path that we were trying to go down the path obviously she succeeded exponentially better than than our failure uh but it was then we were trying to figure out whether there was an overlap between, uh, the music industry and theater. Um, and then there was another one that was sort of something with the law school classmate of mine. Um, but then I was kind of a little lost and I I knew I wanted to do something in media. I knew I wanted to be around creatives. I knew I wanted to be, um, uh, I, I knew I wanted that kind of thrill of, of, of entrepreneurship where, you know, you're you're in something that's like there's just something being built and the highs and the lows obviously happen but you're you're part of it uh, and long story short uh, a friend of my family I walked him through what I was trying to figure out um, after another friend had told me you know foreign policy is an avocation right? like it's not it's not a vocation you're not going to make money in that you can always be interested in it um, but it's not going to be a life it's not going to make you can't make a living off of it and there's there's a lot of truth to that um, and so. When, so I sort of got an uh, introduction to Jason Hirshhorn through this mutual friend and Jason and I hit it off and the friend said, look, Andrew's really smart. You really should find a way to hire him. And so I worked uh, when Jason was the head of just before he became head of all digital media at MTV, he was running MTV and VH1 and they were building out MTV Overdrive um, and uh, Mother Lode from Comedy Central. Um, I forget what the VH1 was, but they, like, but they built these apps with Microsoft that were video apps. And so I was there just after the deals had gotten done and as they were building it. And it was a strategy and operations role. Um, and so I was in MTV for about three years and it was a highly, highly political time there. Uh, Jason left after about a year that I got there. And then uh, Nick Lehman, who's now the head of uh, uh, ASCAP uh, uh, as a CEO, but when I was working for him. um He ended up leaving not not much longer after Jason. And then, uh, you know, sort of worth noting, the the interesting thing that happened at that moment was that they hired Michael Wolf to be president of MTV Networks. And there's a really interesting thing to highlight here. I've been thinking about it lately, but it's it's just sort of worth highlighting for our conversation. Maybe it's something to come back to, but you know, if Jason was betting on, Jason Hirschhorn was betting on the culture of MTV driving digital outcomes that would excite fans. And uh, when Michael Wolf came in, his perspective was more, look, like we should be, we should have platforms in the gaming space, in the video hosting space. You know, they bought um, Adam Films uh, and they bought XFire. And what he was much more focused on was like, we need to, MTV needs, if it's going to be a digital player, it actually has to have digital first businesses. And it was actually, it's one of those, uh, it's a really fascinating strategic difference um, that, that I don't think, you know, when I think about it more and I look at legacy media business through what I do, like that difference keeps on popping up, right? Which is how do you preserve the creative culture that made those brands that were so powerful over the past few decades? But at the same time, how do you build digital native businesses that are much more around the metrics of, of, uh, of of scaling a video player and scaling adding ad impressions on a on a on a custom video player, uh, or how do you stay in the gaming space so you can start tying into the direct to consumer revenues that are just growing exponentially? There, like those were th- that was a philosophical debate that Jason lost, um, and then Michael ended up ultimately losing too. And and it's a really it, it's a uh, I mean, Michael won because he got all these. They made all these acquisitions, but he lost in the sense that MTV just didn't stay with his strategy. And so there's a, a more broadly in my account. And so it was one of those things that actually like, so I was there for that. And then uh, so just fast forward, and then so uh, the guy I worked with very closely, a guy named Denmark West, went over to BET to run digital there, uh, asked me to come over and help out with consulting, and ended up getting like a nice consulting gig for the next heads of uh, three heads of digital there, uh, a guy named Marchez Moore. And then someone came Dottie, who went over to Twitter just after BET. Um, and I worked on a variety of problems. The last one, which probably most relevant to your audience is, uh, there is the, the, the ad market, the digital ad market is dysfunctional. And part of the problem with the digital ad market is particularly for legacy media companies is that the TV guys do better selling linear than they do than selling digital um, in terms of just pure dollars. And so, there hadn't been good um uh turn off notifications, sorry um uh, there hadn't been good uh how can i describe it there had not been a strong digital strategy across my to build websites that were really focused on driving click-through data on audiences right now, there, was, there was like amateurniture data on what people clicked on and we had a sense of how many people came to visit for celebrity news but it was an impressions based model and the, and the and as facebook and google were proving clearly the marketplace was headed much more towards what do people click on and why and uh, and the the value of a banner impression or a pre-roll impression like there was clearly value but there was more value in other ad models and so we were dealing with video because video was still getting a high CPM, again, the TV guys were selling it. So the TV guys were probably selling it higher than it only would have been sold if, if it had been sold digital direct. And but they were selling more impressions than the, the website was sometimes generating. And so you and didn't care, right? Their job was to sell the ad buyers market was to buy and so you know what, what was happening in the marketplace and you know the, this the dysfunctional line is a quote of Rob Norman um, formerly head of Group M was that both sides had a working relationship. it was fine right like, like if you're an ad seller you could find somebody who wanted to, to buy from Viacom and if you're an ad buyer uh, you, you could Viacom was going to deliver for you uh, content that was brand safe. And they would sort of do some website design with Sizzle. In other words, like it was good-looking website design so that when your pre-roll ran, you could show your clients, like, look how amazing this ad buy is. Mm -hmm. But we were so focused on solving that problem, nobody was sitting down and saying um, basically what, what Neil Vogel and the Dot Dash team said, which was, our websites don't work. Like they don't load. We lose people because of the high load times, because of all the code that's loading because of all the header bidding. We need to stop serving ads for three months to a year or whatever, like three months, six months, whatever. We need to figure out how to make a better designed website. And then from there, you know, we'll start serving ads again. And and we'll, uh, more importantly, like we're just going to answer questions for people who Google stuff and we never, I never saw at Viacom, number one, anybody in the ad sales seemed willing to even take that bet, right? And, and for, for the record, IAC made that bet because Barry Diller said, fine, figure figured out if there's enough traffic here, and ad load is the problem, then we should just fix all for ad load um, and site design. But it was really, it, it's one of those things that I really think about a lot and informs a lot of what I do, which is. There was a, the marketplace was fundamentally defined by supply and demand on the TV side, the linear side that worked. And, and there was, you had to incentivize them to budge away from the model that they were pursuing and, and basically tell ad sales guys like, Hey, you have to make less money this year because we have to solve for make digital. And that wasn't make a conversation I want to have. No, nobody wants to have the conversation. No, you need to make less money now. Um, and so that was that's what that's how it played out and and it was a uh, and it's still playing out a lot of these legacy media companies if i did i did something for new york media and, and there was a, uh, a a different business that I pursued and, and it was a you, know, what you saw there was that they were still figuring out what was the how do you operationally run a business for digital where editorial has a better sense of what works with readers but social media has a good better sense of what works with social media audiences to drive quick through and if those two things don't reconcile, then how do you scale the business? Um, and and then how does ad sales factor into that? Right. So, th- so there was you see it all these different media businesses, and maybe you see that too that that, that fundamental need to rely on ad sales. Like unless you you're getting very lucky with a, uh, an owner like Barry Diller saying fix this problem and then let's scale the business. Uh, I don't like you're just going to keep on seeing this same type of problem play out in the marketplace.
0: Well, I definitely want to jump into the your thoughts on the kind of AVOD, SVOD, and the hybrid model here in a little bit, and, and uh, make sure that we come back to um, with your experience from MTV, uh, you know, the economics of content, something we talk a lot about. You know, original content, uh, you know, what would be a you know reality programming versus kind of what you're seeing now. You know, ten million dollar plus an hour shows on streaming. Um, kind of how that fits into those models. I think there's there's something there with um, you know, the launch of Discovery Plus, and kind of th- those models. That I think you'd have probably good perspective from uh, your time at MTV. But before we jump in any further on that, you kind of mo- uh, walking our our audience through uh, the background on Parkour and kind of what its mission is.
1: I'll, I'll build off of something I said earlier, right? Which is so uh, have a legal training and and you know, having a little bit in foreign policy, I think a lot about strategically and strategically is when you think strategically, it's really not about this sort of big grandiose, like um, um, vague concept of strategy. What I really focus on is exactly what I walk through with the ad sales teams, right? Which is who is incentivized to do what within an organization. That to me is, and you know, I was was published in law school on game theory. And so I think it's in those terms, right? Like what is somebody's priority? What are they incentivized to do? If they're not if they, if they can't do what they're incentivized to do, what is the next outcome? And so I built parkour because I felt like I wasn't getting answers to those questions either from journalists or from reading uh, quarterly reports and annual earnings reports and listening to investor earnings calls. I felt like there was something missing in the discussion of the marketplace. Um, the, you know, the the and so what I focus on is, you know, I, I it's kind of organically happened over the past year. So literally a year and a half ago, I was interviewed by um, uh, equity research analyst, Andrew Friedman at Hedgeye. And I realized, all right, there's a whole audience of investors out there that I can reach. Let me start, let me launch a subscription model. So I sort of launched it and you have some very high profile readers and, and, and executives and investors and investment bankers and venture capitalists. Like I've got a really strong, subscriber reader base. And then for my free newsletter, I have, uh, executives, you know, anywhere from Hulu to NBCU to NBCU to CBS. I've got a real, uh, I've got a really strong network and readership in C-suites uh, and senior executive positions and major media companies and tech companies. And so I've been writing for them, What's organically emerged over the past year, uh, our four frameworks, and that was a, a deck I pulled together at the end of the year um, that you highlighted in your uh, in your in your excellent newsletter. Um, that I wanted to just show. All right, here are four ways to understand the incentives of executives. Um, here's 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 understand why either what they're telling Wall Street probably isn't going to happen, or you should know how to be skeptical about it, or you know why you should feel comfortable with the explanation that they're giving because they're incentivized to do that. And so there's four frameworks that emerged. There's a fifth one that just emerged uh, in a recent post, which we'll come back to in a second. Um, the first one was, I call it fiduciary versus visionary. Um, actually, the first one in on the deck is Curse of the Mobile. So let's start with that. Curse of the Mogul is based off of a 2011 book by a, a bunch of Columbia University professors who basically argued, look, traditional media companies spend more money on, you know, generate more returns for their, Content creators and for investors, um, and a tell of that is when they say when they don't share metrics, but they play up the you know, the creative talent that they have. And so, what I th- when I what I thought about with that lens, and it sort of came from a conversation with a close friend, um, was okay. So this is a D 2 C marketplace, right? So coming back to my point about click through behavior on a website, in a D 2 C marketplace, we know. How many subscribers there are. We know, like there is an objective metric that they can't hide. And so if a company is sharing how many D2C subscribers they have, that's great. That's something that you should pay attention to and feel confident in that business. And if they're not, then that merits more questions. And so to make it very simple, obviously Netflix shares its metrics. But HBO Max, you know, AT&T gives a really robust breakdown of the difference between HBO Max subscribers and uh, HBO Max, uh, H- HBO customers who could get HBO Max but haven't signed up for it yet. Like, you get a real robust picture of how they're operating, and it's very helpful, and it tells a story, and you know which questions to ask, given that they're clear. But for Peacock, which tells you that they have 33 million registered users, we don't really know anything. Because if, 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 that, if that's from an AVOD perspective, we don't know how many of those people really use the service over the course of a month. And from an SLOD perspective, we have no idea how many of them are paying. And so that is a red flag. And then you read an article from, like something from the information about a week ago where they talk about Jeff Shell being the you know, this NBCU CEO being fundamentally concerned about the ability of Peacock to scale. And you think, okay, Curse of the Mogul told me to flag Peacock, and here is information that showed up that confirms that that Peacock, uh, 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 you know, the Peacock probably has some issues scaling, and, and it's worth you're starting asking skeptical questions about the strategy and what they're going to do to fix it. Um, second one is something called fiduciary versus visionary. Again, that focuses on incentives. You know, the, the sort of amusing way to phrase it is the fiduciary executive is focused on his mortgage, the visionary is focused on his equity package, and, and the longer-term vision of how the market works, um, and then uh, third one is parkour uh, hypothesis for this Oh, product channel fit, which I think is the most fascinating thing in the marketplace that not enough people talk about. Product channel fit is a premise that you know, your product you can't you can't mold the channel to your product. You have to mold your product to the channel, and what that means is. It's, it's the difference between consuming Netflix on Roku and consuming Netflix on Apple TV device. There are actually fundamental differences in the, in the functionality that Netflix is focused on making. And it's more work for Netflix to do that. But Apple TV is a channel, Roku is a channel, and they try to build the best possible experience on those channels to scale the product. And so there is a slide there I went through product channel fit for every possible um, service. And, it, and it's, a, it's it tells you both... It tells you two things which is number one just how um how advanced they are in understanding marketing right like direct-to-consumer marketing what they need to do in order to scale but then secondly in the case of those that that fundamentally rely on ott channels right which is uh like stars um uh and you know, discovery plus to an extent where you know they, they just have partnerships with uh, Amazon Prime Video channels, or they have a, a partnership with Roku channels, or they have a partnership with uh, uh, YouTube TV channels that that they need third parties to help them scale in exchange for a share of their, their ad inventory and or subscription revenue. Um, the last one is the parkour hypothesis and that's based off of IAC. Um, and it, it happened because it, it came about because in within a week's time two things happened. Number one, Barry Diller was interviewed by Ben Smith in the New York Times, where he said, "I am," uh, he said, "he said Disney is the only legacy media company that's going to make it in streaming. Everybody else is a caddy on a golf course; they'll never play." And it's a snarky, ruthless quote. And I think he's—I think he got it—it it got it wrong in HBO Max. But I think everybody else is pretty much been pretty right. On. Um. And the second thing that happened was they released their investment memo, IAC released their investment memo to shareholders about why they invested a billion dollars in MGM Resorts. And reading that memo, the thing that came out of it was, oh, you guys look at a Disney and here are the check marks of why a Disney is going to work. And here's your CEO saying that nobody else is going to succeed. So if I look at your check marks for why Disney succeeds, and I listen to your CEO and apply those check marks to other businesses, I can actually get a good sense of why, how you're thinking about the competition and how we should think about the competition of who's going to make it, You know, who should be playing on the golf course and you know, who's going to play on the golf course and everybody else is going to be a caddy. And it's a really fascinating lens. I've, I've learned so much from it, but it, you know, it ends up being... Um, you know, the, the hypothesis really like the, the five check marks are, you know, it's the BEADS, B A B-E-A-D-S acronym, but it's um, it's got an aspirational brand, right? Like, like ATT is is much more of a utilitarian brand, um, but HBO Max is an aspirational brand. Um, and so like that's kind of that's kind of a tech core tension that you have with an ATT. Um Disney is the aspirational brand. Um, you have an existing user base at scale. So again, something like HBO Max started with thirty-five million subscribers, whereas something like Stars has ten million in the U.S., five internationally. It's not really at the same scale. It probably, arguably, doesn't have scale. In fact, like the best example of that is AMC Networks, which has five million subscribers across five apps. Um, and then uh, you have existing user base at scale. Uh, they have. It's, uh, access so you, have, you have daily access to the brand and so there's kind of this notion that there's um, something new uh, uh, there's something new every day um, and like basicallys like a daily value proposition sorry like sorry, so it's access to the brand kind of like on a daily basis like a value proposition but it's it's the difference between um, Netflix which has like a new title almost every day every week and uh, stars which does a, a new, a new, um, uh, a new season of power every like three quarters, right or two quarters, um, and then the other one is is the multiple avenues for, for monetization, and that was kind of the big aha moment, right? Which is so coming back to AT and T, AT and T is monetizing some of its HBO subscriber base both through Uh, um, I guess both through wireless plans or broadband plans and broadband fiber plans. um, And they're getting a subscription fee from HBO Max. Uh, Disney monetizes people on merch. um, And one of of the the, the, the interesting dynamic that I flagged was for all the talk of Warner Media and Peacock merging, the biggest problem is that in, a, in an ideal world, Warner media has theme parks to monetize the Harry Potter IP and the DC universe IP and the Looney Tunes IP. But in the real world where they have is, is they have, they license their IP to universal theme uh, Universal theme parks, universal studios theme parks. And they also license their IP to six flags. And so they're not really, they're just getting a licensing fee. They're not really getting more data on the consumer monetizing them all the way. And so those are really the four frameworks. The fifth one I just wrote about is co which is, it's like a, I mean, there's been books written on it, but it's a premise that biz, the competing businesses can can um, can uh, cooperate for mutually beneficial outcomes, and so that was a, that was a piece about IMDb TV and Amazon and and Roku and the Roku Channel signing distribution deals with each other, and it happened within three months, and it was pretty quick, it was pretty seamless, there's not a lot of discussion of it and how much that contrasted with the HBO Max and Peacock negotiations with both Amazon and Roku for distribution on their platforms in exchange for ad inventory. Um, And so it's those five frameworks. I write a a Monday morning briefing that goes out 6.30 every Monday morning. I write uh, longer thought pieces based off of, or longer analyses, really, it's not even thought pieces. uh, Analyses based off of those frameworks on Tuesdays or go out Tuesdays or Wednesdays. Um, and then on Fridays, I do something called a mic drop, which I'm going to send a little bit after this one, where I, I revisit old predictions and I kind of either you know, playfully boast about what I got right, or um, I also will admit where I've gotten it terribly, terribly well. And so that, that's, that's, that's really what I do. That's the, those are the four, four or five frameworks, and those are the three mails that I offer. The membership is paid. Uh, it's about $50 a month. But so right now, there's a 90-day 90, 90 promotion for $33 a month. Um, and the other two are free.
0: Hey, well, I definitely recommend uh, all our community signing up for that. And we'll add a make sure we got a link in both the post and the newsletter this week. Um, I want to get back to the the uh, IMDB post in a little bit. because I thought that was excellent, um, but something more timely. And, and I noticed this, this didn't make Barry Diller's list. So I'm interested sure to get your thoughts, but we're recording this the same week as the uh, Viacom CBS streaming event. Um, what's your outlook on this offering and kind of where does it fit in the overall market?
1: I was interviewed uh, by by the uh, observers Brandon Katz, who's, who's actually at this point really one of the best writers out there on the digital uh, media space. Just because he's he, he's not afraid to ask tough questions, and he gets really smart, uh, excluding me. He gets really smart observers to come and, and comment on his uh, uh, on his articles. Um, but he you know he interviewed me this week, and and my core takeaway was this: I thought you know there's 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 actually there's a great quote in your newsletter from. Um, Who's the guy, the former Netflix co-CEO, Rudolph, Mark Rudolph, is that right? Yes. And he's talking about how content, you know, having enough content to serve the audience is what's going to be key. And I think that that, with that presentation was just pedal to the metal on that point. Like, you want great content? We've got great content. We've got amazing content. We have sports. We have, you know, we have kids. We have um, MTV. We have CBS. We have Comedy Central, like. With bet. I mean, it was really like it was. It was just you know they tried to replicate Shock and Off from the the Disney investor presentation. There were two key differences though, which is number one, they didn't talk about user interface. So, and my favorite example is I tweeted about this yesterday. Is you know there was a really excellent point made by Chris McCarthy. He's you know after a really terrific presentation by George Cheeks about the strength of the sports uh, offerings. Chris McCarthy said, you know what people watch after they watch sports? Well, our data tells us that they watch reality TV. And here's our reality TV lineup. And I thought, okay, that's really smart. That makes a ton of sense. And then I, but then I thought, okay, so what's the software going to look like, right? Because like Netflix and, uh, and and like Hulu would make sure that after I watched the Super Bowl, the first thing that I would see is reality tv content if that observation is true. And they didn't devo- I, I I think there might have been like a 5 second screen grab of the of the interface but like Disney at its investor day did its uh Disney at its investor day did like 5 minutes uh talking about how the Star and Star Plus interfaces would work. So you had a sense of where that where that product was going and you had a sense of how ESPN content would sit next to Disney content uh, on Star Plus. or um, how Star content and, and the fact that there was a gating, adult gating on the uh, on the Star app, like you understood the one hundred one of how the business was going to work. And then they didn't. You didn't get that from Viacom about its own streaming products. Um, the second thing was I didn't think that. Um, you know, I, I, they didn't really talk about marketing. Like, you know, they, they sort of like Discovery. Discovery did the same thing on its investment day. They didn't want to disclose that many marketing partnerships and they're sort of still figuring out. And, you know, they have that Apple TV partnership and it looks like Apple TV helped them grow uh, subscribers uh, over the past quarter, but now it sounds like the, the deal is off. Like there's there's some weird, it's not clear how they're going to market this thing. And again, this is a product channel fit argument, right? Which is, okay, are you going to make channels deals where that requires you to give up 20% of your subscription revenue and 30% of your ad inventory in order to scale? Um, Because as Roku Scott, EDP Scott Rosenberg has said, and I think it's a really terrific point. He's like, look, yes, we take, we take that share, but you're incentivizing us to help you. Like if you don't give us that, then we can't really help you grow. And, and we know our own ecosystems. We want to help you grow in our own ecosystem. And it's you know I, I I get why a pitch like that merits skepticism, but at the same time, like Stars has grown because of it, Disney has grown because of it. There are, there are success stories, and Viacom CBS didn't mention that. And so I I, I thought that my you know I, I I was quoted in Brandon's article to say you know that I was sold on kids sports and Pluto TV, and the rest of the stuff they're better off selling to Netflix. And the, the it's it's a it's a simplistic quote. And I think it. I think it's. You know, it hasn't invited any criticism. I haven't had any like go back on it. Knock on wood. But you know the. But the the point of it is, you know, I'll put it this way: the simplest way to, to to distill the problem. If Netflix was not bidding on a Fraser reboot with all of its data and with sixty-seven million uh, U.S. subscribers, right? If they if they didn't try to find a way to get Kelsey Grammer and Frasier back on their platform. Then why is Viacom CBS betting on it? And you can sort of, and, and for the record, I think that logic also applies to Peacock and Punky Brewster. Because I think there was a review this week in the Hollywood review where the point was, well, why is this here? Like we get why it's here. We understand the generational angle, but like the, the so what of having the show isn't very clear other than the fact that NBCU has this old IP and they think that they can repurpose it uh, and, and monetize it. And so I, I think that that's the that's the part of this that that's the real big question, which is coming back to sort of those two issues: distribute uh, the you know the the marketing um, uh, and uh, what was the other one? Um I'm totally blank. I'll remember in a second. But the key point being that uh, the that I don't and the, and the interface, which is if you don't. Have an interface that understands that when Michael Beach and Andrew Rosen sign on to, Mer- to Paramount Plus to Paramount Plus, and Michael likes Frasier and Andrew likes Beavis and Budhead in the real world, if it doesn't understand that about either of us, and, and this is all based off of Netflix precedent, it's going to be pretty useless uh, because neither of us has the time to hunt and peck for this stuff. And so I, I think that, and more importantly, like if... In, on something like Frazier, again, like if, if, if Netflix isn't, doesn't, isn't saying that its users want it, then if there's no demand for it and the interface isn't there to recommend it to Michael instead of Andrew, then the bet becomes a little bit even more suspicious. And so you start to wonder whether they're better off in that kind of arms dealer model like they did with South Park. As much as they're launching without South Park, which is a real weakness, at the same time, they got $500 million. And so, and, and so, there's a weird, you know, the, the the thing that they're ultimately chasing, unfortunately, I don't know if they're chasing a smart business model, but I know the business objective that they're chasing is first of all, Sherry Redstone has been very clear that she thinks that the MTV, BET, Comedy Central, all the old Viacom assets are undervalued. And she's probably right. Uh, there's, there's, and I think she I think they did a good job. And it was pretty clear that this was the, the the objective of this investor day which is listen you're totally underestimating the, the value of our library look how powerful our library is but at the same time the question becomes well, why do you want to put in a streaming service because a streaming service is super super complicated to to execute and again like something like product channel fit that is, you know, I was talking with somebody recently who's got a background in digital media marketing and has worked in the movie industry this week. And, and he got it. He's, he understood that that the business really sits at those little moments between, you know, the, the production of the content and the hosting of the content the distribution of the content and how you optimally distribute the content to the right audiences. Because if your content doesn't work in a particular channel, like you're just going to fail. And so net, that's the way Netflix operates. Um, uh, they they think about that in a way like at a mathematical scale that's just can't even really begin to calculate or fathom, um, and I just don't know if Viacom CBS is ready to do that as strong as the pitch about the strength of their brands and their library was.
0: Yeah, I was having this conversation the other day. Interesting, even with you know Pluto TV being there, and and kind of what your thoughts are on. Obviously, that's been a you know successful uh avod uh platform so far and you know a lot of the other services that have launched haven't launched with that as kind of a um you know connected entity what do you see long term i mean is there uh, one do you think they'll be able to monetize users on paramount plus at a higher rate than they can on pluto or you know what are your thoughts
1: I think Pluto, so remember the problem I described earlier about the dysfunctional marketplace and ad ad sales guys being incentivized to sell linear ads more than the same selling digital? Pluto is an additional distribution channel for TV advertising. With the same content that also includes targeting and and first-party data, all the things that advertisers are willing to pay more for. Pluto TV is the best digital media acquisition Viacom uh, made. uh, Both while I was there, was there, and after I was there. I think if you know at the end of the day, if you want to map a digital project product to what you do best, Pluto is it. They like people don't really fully appreciate just how strong Viacom CBS's ad sales teams are. You know, Viacom's ad sales team before the merger, the same for CBS. But Pluto is arguably plug and play. It's basically sell the same inventory, but now it's a free service and we're just going to start um, extending the reach and offering targeting in a way that we weren't able to before on TV or at a level that we weren't able to before on TV because they did have a sophisticated, the uh, you know, Viacom Velocity was a sophisticated targeting platform. And so I think Pluto's just on its own is is... Again, this comes back to the IAC point and and the dot-dash example, right? Which is, if Bob Backditch went to the marketplace and said, look, Pluto is just the future. Like, this is what we do best. And more importantly, it's just so much more robust and a rocket ship compared to what we had in in TV ad sales Without that, that, that won't even disrupt what we do well in TV ad sales. I don't know why the market would punish Firecom, CBS for, for, for saying we're going to weight this heavier because it's the real deal. I, got, I but again, I don't I don't think like an investor. So you know, investors have been really happy with the numbers that make no sense to me. I'm I'm the guy who thinks about well, I know what the number says, but what are the moving pieces behind that number? That where I where where we have evidence or we don't have evidence, right? So coming back to having a law degree, like it's it's an evidence based argument to being able to ask questions. And so I I find. Pluto just to be awesome. I, I was so impressed with Tom Ryan in that presentation. I thought he was a rock star in that. Tom Ryan, Chris McCarthy, uh, sorry, Tom Ryan, Brian Robbins, and George Cheek for the rock stars in that one. I just thought like a thing that I was sold by, I was sold by those three. And, and I, again, Chris McCarthy's point about reality TV too. Um, but I just find that, and you know, Ryan's now running the 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 video platform and the interactive video division after Mark Debevoy's left. and. I'm really fascinated to see what he figures out because his background comes from having built these things from the ground up. I just, like, I think Pluto is, um, I think Pluto is the real deal. I think the premise of using library content uh, to you know, to drive uh, video consumers is awesome. Uh, the one thing I forgot to point to, I thought, the one point I forgot to make earlier that's related to this is, at one point, Tom Ryan showed a slide of how they're going to drive traffic to the uh, streaming services. So, and it wasn't marketing partnership. They said, hey, you know, we are number one on linear TV for uh, media. So, you know, for media companies, we're number one on social video for media companies. And I think I think it's a very like specifically defined subset. But, and they said, and then, you know, we have Pluto TV. And I just felt like, mm i don't I don't know that's the one weakness in all this, which is I think Pluto TV is awesome. I think I think the point that they were making was not necessarily that they could scale from all this, but rather, if you highlight linear TV as a way to drive traffic, what you're basically saying is we have all this inventory that we don't have to pay for, so we can place as many bets as possible um, with house inventory to drive subscribers. And therefore it's going to be ROI positive, which I think is makes sense. Um, and then for the social video, that's that's an interesting question, only because you know they have to have the sophistication of like a of a Netflix, right, where you know, they know when to run a six second ad versus a thirty second ad, mm-hmm. or when they when you know, the uh, uh, what's it, the True TV, I think, what's the um, you know the, the call to action for skipping ads when when that shows up, um, and the timer, and then I don't know if they have that sophistication in house, um, and then uh, you know the last one being look TV, I think it makes a ton of sense. It's going to scale worldwide. It's going to be again more house inventory. It's just a question of how many of those people are going to be actual qualified leads, given that they're going to a free service where they just have to add an email rather than pay money.
0: You talked about uh, Peacock earlier and kind of their multiple models. You know, uh, premium and uh, ad supported, and you know, free with your Xfinity service. You know, what are your thoughts over on the, you know, AVOD only, SVOD only, or, the, or hybrid? And kind of, you know, do you see which one went in and out or just a proliferation of all three?
1: I, I think the, I think Peacock and Paramount Plus actually have very similar issues, which is what's the value proposition of sports to the consumer? What's the value proposition of kids content to the consumer? And what's the value proposition of your broader library to the consumer? And I don't know, right? Like, I don't know. When I heard the sports presentation from George Cheeks, I thought, wow, that sounds like an awesome app that I'd like to see. And then when Brian Robbins walked through all the kids' content, I thought, wow, that's an app I'd like to see. Um, And then, and then when uh, again, Chris McCarthy made the point about reality TV and sports content, I thought, wow, that's a user experience I'd like to see, right? And so, and so what's interesting about all of those, And it's sort of my thinking lately, so it's a little little new, but I'll share it, which is I sort of wonder what it would be like if you had a startup app with the same rights, right? Starting with, let's say it was just a startup app that had sports, reality TV, and kids content. My guess is they do something kind of similar to Netflix where they break break out the kids' experience. And then the rest of the, the viewing experience really would be built around, okay, you can watch sports, you can watch reality TV, And because there's so much reality TV around there, we're going to start messing with the permutations to keep you engaged because there's actually something here. Like we have this fundamental insight on human behavior and we're just going to find a way to make this thing scale. And so I think it's, I think that's actually like a compelling business pitch. Like somebody said, look, we're just going to take sports rights and available reality TV IP and we're just going to build a fun viewing experience. I think that would actually do pretty well. And you know, I don't know if it would end up being like a Sumo or a Pluto being bought by one of these guys or you know, or a Tubi, but it makes sense. And so because they have that data insight and because the user interface is all about the, you know, what do you want to watch right now? And so I like, like I, I think in terms of that logic, right? And so if you think in terms of that logic, you start thinking, you start looking at the Peacock app. And so you see the, the channels viewing thing, which I actually think is really cool again that's just mirroring what pluto's doing and i've, I've watched saturday Night live sketches a few times but really nothing else um and I've, I've, there's a, a, a criticism that I, I i agree with which is if i come in halfway through the show and i can't rewind then what's the value to me of having that mm-hmm. show on um and and so at some point the, at some point when you're trying to lump all these things together the fundamental value of what you have is actually getting lost and your fundamental understanding of the consumer seems to be getting lost that was my takeaway from the paramount conversation so i say all that because at the end of the day i think people would pay for sports plus reality i'm skeptical that people will pay for sports plus reality plus library content plus movies plus like like it's kind of like i don't think people pay to drink from a fire hose and i think that's what peacock's kind of hybrid model and uh uh and uh and so the, and Paramount Plus' is hybrid model is trying to do. The other hybrid model is, is Hulu, right? Which doesn't have a free tier. And is very much about the personalized interface making recommendations to you, the consumer base of what, what you watched before. And then they've broken out live TV as its own experience. It's also somewhat integrated into the uh, into the app. And notably, like they've just signed the Kardashians for reality TV and they're making a bunch of other reality TV bets. Um, And they've had some, they've had success with Discovery's library, right? So something like Hulu is really interesting because they're an ABOD model, but they don't have a free tier. And they're kind of, they're, they're playing in that understanding that Chris McCarthy builds in a much more sophisticated way than either Peacock or Paramount Plus. And so I I think about that a lot because I think that the, again, like the Hulu, Hulu basically says to, Hulu basically says to Paramount Plus, you're absolutely right and here's how we're doing it. Can you do the same thing? Yes or no. Um, and I don't think I've seen that point made yet, but I think it's actually very much the, the market dynamic. Um, and, when coming to just, and just to answer your S5 point quickly, like I think there's something, my, I think if, if you remember I've written a bunch about the jo- the genre wars and the genre wars are, I don't think it's the streaming wars. I don't think these services are really competing head to head. But I do think it's really interesting that Stars has found 10 million subscribers in the U.S. simply by focusing on, uh, with creating content for undervalued audiences and focusing on women, uh, in navigating a user behavior of, of, of not churn but really a pause, right? Which is people watch something, they 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 churn out of it and they come back a little later. Antenna has fantastic data on this, like you should ask them for it because they sent me some, um, but. Like, it's a really, it's really interesting to see that they have a business with that understanding of the consumer and they make production decisions based off of it. And so the same thing goes for what AMC is doing with like Shudder. You know, Shudder, I, I kind of like amusingly referred to as a goth app, right? Like like there, there are people who like horror year round, <laughs> they like dark, dark content year round, but they, that you know, Netflix doesn't bet on horror year round. Netflix bets on horror around Halloween, but they're, millions of people in the u.s who probably want a horror app year round and they serve it to them at a cost effective price Um, and again they can you know they can come up with new content like creep show and again they can navigate that whole positive dynamic and so what you're finding is that there are as much as netflix is crushing everybody and disney is is, is just extraordinary in its growth um there are there are business models to be had at a smaller scale um, and they're profitable, and they they leverage product channel fit. They understand the direct to consumer relationship. That people when people leave, they're not leaving forever, and you just have to figure out a way to kind of keep them in the loop. Um, and it's a business model, and and I just find that really fascinating because you know all of a sudden you start to realize you start focusing on bets on genre and not IP. And so something like Bridgerton on Netflix was a was a bet on genre, um, and it was a bet on like airport romance novels as as you know as reimagined by Shonda Rhimes. and like, that was you know, airport romance novels really had trouble getting to marketplace before that there you know, and, and in fact there was somebody had a Twitter conversation with someone and she was describing the fact that like if you're reading a romance novel on the subway, Odds are it was it was there was a book cover on it right. There was a whole market for book covers for romance novels that took off simply because people didn't want to be seen as reading like a trashy, like saucy, sexy romance novel in public. Um, and so it's it's really that point about genre and seeing the types of bets that work because you know I I I once helped uh, a friend of a friend with a, a pitch for a music show to Netflix and. Yeah, I got pretty high with it. And the feedback I got was like, this isn't going to like these shows don't really, you won't see a lot of their shows on that site because it doesn't really drive subscriptions. It doesn't really drive the types of conversions that they need. And and I think, I think they would do a music show if they could figure out a way to do it. They sort of get like the, again, like Shonda Rhimes does romance novels. Like you need, um, you know, it's almost like Mark, Martin Scorsese in the band, right? You need the big name to reimagine something for music that's gonna drive subscribers. Um, it like the genre, if because all these individual channels exist and they provide all this data on consumers, and, and the data on consumers is getting better, getting more robust, and the targeting is getting better. Um, that you can actually in each of these channels, um And particularly in YouTube, where where Netflix is, as as an executive said to me, is eons ahead of everybody else in terms of marketing. You can put one of these, an ad for one of these shows, in front of the right audience, and there's a strong likelihood that you're going to be able to convert them based off the data that you get. And it's just an entirely different business model, but at the same time, because you have a recurring, a a guaranteed recurring source of revenue, um, and you're able to find that consumer much more easily than you probably were with. Linear TV, which is much more spray and pray. If you can figure out the science of it all, and it's, you know, it's an evolving science that's complicated and sometimes it's expensive, like there's a business model to be had.
0: Well, uh, this has been fascinating. I, I could I could talk about this for hours, but uh, I'm going to get you out of here on two more questions. Uh, one kind of really big picture, you know, looking for kind of what... Um, what single development are you most excited about kind of in the, in the overall um, kind of streaming landscape?
1: So, I, so to answer your question, I think co-optition is actually the most exciting development. Um, and I say that partially because uh, as a self-promoter, but more, more so because I think the standoffs between Roku and Amazon and NBCU and HBO Max Um, And the fact that Roku and Amazon themselves kind of like reached a pretty seamless or seemingly seamless handshake deal for uh, distributing their AVOD apps on each other's platforms. I just think it's a fascinating point because within that is this question of original content. IMDB TV is producing original content. Roku for the Roku channel is now distributing Quibi content as their own. Um, and here you have HBO Max and Peacock as these legacy media companies that again like, invested in Punky Brewster um, and it, the, sort of the, the 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 secret, uh, uh, I guess, the secret um, uh, issue in the HBO Max negotiations, you know, that led to that kind of triangulated outcome where they had a deal around Amazon Web Services um, was they had a um, you know, that, that, the AVOD inventory and sorry, the advertising inventory, uh, for the AVOD services. I don't think, I don't think NBCU or, uh, or Peacock, uh, NBCU or, um, Warner media were comfortable with the notion of Roku and Amazon having stronger, uh, digital ad platforms, um, for targeting with first party data, right? Like first party data at NBCU versus first party data, uh, at Roku, across 61 million homes, or at Amazon, across 150 million Prime subscribers, nobody wants to compete with that. And so, if you go in and you, and you make a deal and you say, "All right, like I want to be on your platform, and I really don't want you to compete with me on on ad sales," um, and in fact, you know, in the there's a really fantastic uh, like like Lightshed just wrote a piece, about this, but Rick Greenfield, if you look at the the Roku earnings call. Well, he asked a terrific question on this. Where he's like, where do you buy? Should I buy on Roku or should I buy on Peacock and maybe it'll get served on Roku? Like, where, where, how do I, like, what? how should I, How are you guys competing? And I, I think that that's a really difficult question in the marketplace right now. But I think it's, again, the ease with which Amazon and Roku reached an agreement and the difficulty with which Peacock had in reaching an agreement with Roku and Peacock still has not has no deal with Amazon because of this issue. Um, and the fact that it took an AWS outcome, AWS deal to secure a deal between HBO Max um, and Amazon around distributing HBO Max on Amazon, it's a really fascinating challenge for legacy media because look, most of their inventory is sold it up front. Um, you know, the rest is going to be put on the, uh, on the programmatic marketplace, um, but at what point is it dangerous to find product channel fit on Amazon and Roku for an Avon service? I think that is so, I think it's so fascinating to follow. You understand. And if you understand the ad sales personalities, um, like it's a, and more importantly, just right. Only the paranoid survive. I'd be horribly paranoid if I was NBCU be seeing you in Word media right now. Uh, And so I understand why they don't sign these deals and I understand what they're up against, but at the same time, they need to find a way to distribute on these platforms to reach more audiences and scale.
0: Yeah. If I recall correctly, you know, about a week out before the Roku uh, Peacock deal, you know, you had the story leak about uh, Comcast looking to do their own smart TV OS with Walmart. And then the morning of the deal, right. They had said they're going to yank all their NBC universal apps from Roku. I think we only got that for about four hours. But I mean, that was a, you know, a precursor of a, you know, obviously a bigger battle ahead.
1: There is, there is paranoia and it's completely reasonable and justifies.
0: Yeah. All right. Well, last thing I've got uh, something we ask all of our guests. Um, if you could get everyone to read one book right now, uh, what would it be and why?
1: No rules, rules. I, I, and I, and I say this because it was the first time it's a really excellent business book. It's an uncomfortable read. It really challenges your own value system. Like for me, it would challenge my own value system. And when talking about it with people, you can see people get uncomfortable with some of the things, um, yeah, you know, that that they, that they that they that they practice there. And this is beyond the keeper's test, right? It's like there's a quote which I highlighted in my deck, uh, my ear on the deck, uh, which was. You know the the Ted Sarando saying, "Look, let's 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 put this content out." He was talking about funding a show in India. He said, "Look, if it succeeds, great. If it doesn't succeed, it will be a big terrible mess that we're going to learn from, and then we're going to fund the next thing." And I just like we never had that conversation with Viacom CBS. Nobody thought that way. No, nobody. You know, it was it was like we have to win, we have to win, we have to win. And there was never that sort of. There was never that embrace of failure and, and, you know, there's, and it's kind of, it's tangentially related to uh, there was a quote that popped up in my Twitter feed of something that Peter Thiel said to Mark Zuckerberg, right? Like in this market, in this moment in time with so many things changing, you're just better off taking the bigger risks. Um, And, but I think the point of that and what I really like about no rules rules is that it's, it's not like, it's not like jumping into a 60 foot wave and hoping that you survive it's that you do the work right you 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 do you go into a 60 foot wave knowing that you're probably going to fall or if you try to surf it you're probably going to fall like like you probably gonna get like, you're going into something that sounds like a really stupid risk but if you have the framework for navigating it that and you understand what failure is and you understand that and you understand how not to drown when you fall in that wave um, and rather learn from it that you can come out with a better sense of which, of whether you can surf a sixty-foot wave or you'll go into a sixty-foot wave, you know, metaphorically speaking, but or whether it's just a really bad idea based off of your composition and um, uh, and the people that you have around you for making that for assessing that risk and making that decision. I think that that book is. It's, it's a very well structured book, and because it, it really pushes on you in uncomfortable ways, and either you're okay with it or you're not. I liked it, I, I enjoyed it. I thought that that made it an unusually good read.
0: Yeah, it was great. And I, I followed that up in, in with Mark Randolph's book shortly after. And same way, just even how they discovered their subscription model was just a fascinating story. It was the same way it was, you know, wasn't a plan from day one, but they kept learning from their mistakes.
1: read Mark Randall's book. I followed that up with Robert Iger's book. And I, and I thought Iger's book, I'll tell you a funny, quick, funny story, which is I picked up Iger's book in the bookstore and I sort of read a section. I thought, okay, this is just kind of like a glossy take on how he got from point A to point B. And that was a mistake because when you read it, it is those little like glossy stories about kind of how he navigated his career. But then he takes you to fundamental moments where he needed to make a decision about the future of the business and how his past factored into that. You know, and he was mentored by Rune Arledge, and Rune Arledge said, you know, you know like don't, uh, uh, you know, always like, there's a better expression, it's like a, it's a saying I'm just forgetting right now, but it's like, don't be afraid to disrupt your own model, right? Like that it's, um, and so you know, it's embracing disruption. And so he was, uh, yeah, that was his guiding mantra. Like, and so you get a sense of, you do get a sense of the, Disney, the stakes of the Disney Plus decision and the types of things that informed it, even you know, down to him having a relationship with Steve jobs and understanding where video was headed because of the iPhone. Um, and, 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 so it's, it, whereas no rules rules is an uncomfortable, sometimes uncomfortable but highly educational read. Uh, I found Iger's read easy and then absolutely fascinating when he goes into the, uh, uh, he goes into sort of the, the bigger decisions that he had to deal with. And, and you know, I, I, the, the funny thing that I, out of, you know, from the Reed Hastings book, I kind of got a sense that he was an academic, like there, there, there's an academic in him um, just because he, he's such a disciplined thinker. And, and he seems to suggest as much uh, when he thinks about his business, right? That's your key takeaway. And with Iger, you just get the sense that he is just a fantastic performer in, in a corporate environment. Like just one of those guys who you, you put him in there and he, he knows exactly what, you know, if his if his customer are the executives above him or the board, or even like the Disney customers, he just has a kind of empathy and understanding about what it is to you know map the value proposition of what they're doing to uh, to both successful outcomes and to the customer. And I I don't know if I understand a person like that. If that makes sense, like that that part of his empathy didn't really add up. Like I I couldn't quite get that, but I was struck by it, and I think about it a lot because I, I felt like if there's one thing that I I don't know if I could ever really get from him. If I met him in person or read anything else from him was, and and, you know, and and he's very clear up front. There's only a limited amount of information that he wanted to share, but like you get the sense that he is, you know, he, he is absolutely focused on what's the best outcome for the, the company and getting it done. And there's also a tremendous empathy for, uh, his bosses for the customer. I mean, there's, words, there's an understanding that he has an emotional understanding that, that that's implicit in it. And he doesn't explain it, but the stories tell that I think is just really fascinating to read.
0: Yeah. It was incredible. He uh, went by himself to both the George Lucas and Steve jobs negotiations. I mean, that's, you know, shocking, right?
1: You know, the, the Steve jobs, like drawing on the, the whiteboard and then, uh,
0: and then the other one was Lucas
1: uh, um, we're making the bid to Lucas, right? Like and, and that was that whole story about with Lucas is all about empathy, saying this guy did not want to sell. We had to make sure that he was comfortable selling. Yep. I thought like that, that it's a it's a yeah, really wonderful, really terrific story, isn't it?
0: Yeah. Well, Andrew, uh, you know, our our community is gonna love this conversation. I'm already looking forward to our next talk. And uh, you know, I just want to thank you for the time.
1: Enjoy our conversations. Uh, I really love your newsletter. I think it is is—I think it's one of the most elegant and some simple learning experiences that I get weekly. And I think you do an excellent job on it. So thank you for that.
0: Oh, thank you very much. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Screen Bites. I hope you enjoyed the discussion as much as I did. You can find out more about Cross Screen Media at crossscreenmedia.com. And please don't forget to sign up for our weekly newsletter. Stay to the screens. You can find us on social media at Media. Join us next time for more insights and analysis straight from the experts.